Hi everyone, and welcome back to The Director's Cut, brought to you by the Directors Guild of America, where each episode we bring you a brand new interview with one of the film industry's top directors, conducted by one of their peers. This episode takes us behind the scenes of director Mick Jackson's new film, Denial. Based on a true story, the picture follows writer and historian Deborah Lipstadt, who was sued for libel in England after writing an article calling David Irving a Holocaust denier. In Great Britain, the burden of proof in libel cases is placed on the accused, so Lipstadt and her legal team must prove that the Holocaust actually occurred in order to win their case. The film stars Rachel Weisz, Tim Wilkinson, and Timothy Spall. A DGA member since 1990, Mr. Jackson is a four-time winner of the DGA Award for Outstanding Directorial Achievement in Movies for Television and Miniseries for Temple Grandin, Life from Baghdad, Tuesdays with Maury, and Indictment, The McMartin Trial. His credits also include the feature films The Bodyguard, L.A. Story, and Volcano. Following a recent screening of Denial at the DGA Theater in Los Angeles, Mr. Jackson spoke with director Jeremy Kagan about the making of the film, including his experiences working with his cast, having the real Deborah Lipstadt on set, and the challenges in making the dialogue and action of the film as true to life as possible. You know, as I think about this and what's going on at this very moment that some of us are going to have to watch our VCRs to find out or call our significant others, but I'm sure one of the conversations and one of the things we probably aren't hearing but are being t heard are denials. So I, 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 how do you feel about it, actually, in terms of what this film's about and what we're dealing with? It's a film about lies, about lying for political reasons, for ideological reasons. And uh, um, always this film was going to be topical. It was going to be about denial in our world and not just in the historical world of... Uh, the year 2000. Um, I've been working on the film for six years, and so has David Hare, and the producers for another two years longer than that. And when we started working on it, the film was going to be obviously about the big lie of Holocaust denial, you know, one of the biggest lies there was, is, but also it was going to be by implication about climate change denial, about evolution denial, about the, the myth of voter fraud, about vaccines causing autism, all those big lies. And quite often when you, you have a pet project, you nurse over the years, it gets stale. But this has just got more and more and more pertinent. And now tonight, here we are with someone who, well, in this movie you just saw, is somebody who is a, a liar, a bigot, an anti-Semite, an extremist, a perverter of history, and a demagogue who rouses um, hordes of supporters with, with outrageous comments. I mean... So did you guys think of renaming this the Donald? <laughs> but I mean, it's, it's, it's impossible to ignore it. And uh, um, the distributors have very smartly, I think, arranged for their distribution of widening the number of theaters that are showing the movie around the presidential debate. So they, they went wider again last night before this debate. I don't know if anybody else makes a connection, but uh. <laughs> there are a couple that are. There's, there's a line here that says, what feels best is not always what works best. I actually want to ask that question about directing and how you respond to what works in front of you as a director 
and how much it is your craft, of which you are a master, how much it is of your emotional feelings. I really feel that this worked because I felt it. Where do you balance your own feeling with your craft? It's a roundabout answer. Okay. Fair enough. <laughs> um, many years ago, I did a, did a big movie with a star who was also the producer. And we were going to go shooting for what was going to turn out to be an 85, 90-minute movie. And the script was 147 pages. Uh, so that's like 147 minutes, roughly. Uh, and I said to him, um, you know, wouldn't it be simpler to make some cuts now rather than spend all the money on these extra scenes? He said, no. Uh, and what I thought was bullshit at the time, he said, it's like the Thanksgiving turkey. You wrap strips of bacon and lard around it, and you cook it. And then it's a wonderfully rich flavored bird, and you throw the bacon away. So those scenes are like the bacon. I said, what, you mean you do those so that you kind of do your prep with those scenes? He said, yeah. And I thought, that's, that's adding millions of dollars to a movie. But I realize now that he was actually onto something because like Steve Martin said to me about um, comedy, you always write in 12 more jokes than you have room for, but you don't know which they are. And you play the movie in front of an audience, test audience, and the things you, you elaborately set up with millions of extras go flat, and something you just occurred to you as an ad lib uh, in the moment on the set actually brings the house down. You don't know what it is that you've got until you've got it. So you do shoot, shoot a lot of extra scenes. There are a lot of extra scenes in the long version of this movie that you just saw about her loneliness in London, about her deciding whether she was going to take him on and whether she wanted to go to London, all that sort of stuff. As you watch the, the movie assemble itself in the editing, you, you listen to the story that what you've got is telling you as, as if you were an editor, I suppose, in, in that sense. Mm -hmm. So what we have here is not the, the movie I went out to shoot. Wow. It's close to it. And I think the feel of it is 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 what I wanted to do. I, I felt outrage and, and a need to be very careful and restrained that that didn't come through, except through the audience feeling it. So I'm going to still come back to this, but I'm, I'm not, you, you've jumped into something else that I'm really interested. There are two performances that are pretty astounding because they're both difficult performances. There's Timothy Small, <laughs> and and there's also interesting enough for Rachel Weisz because. I know a little bit about who she was playing, and that abrasiveness mm -hmm. is who that woman indeed, is indeed. like. And that's a so you know we don't necessarily. Some of us might not necessarily say you know she's a little hard to deal with for some of us emotionally. But she committed to, and you committed to being. A lot of actresses did not commit either to playing um, David Irving or to playing Deborah Lipstadt for an interesting reason. Um, when I started working five years ago or, or, or whenever with David Hare, we kind of had this conversation where we said, this movie is about historical truth, therefore it must be absolutely unassailably true. There's a caption at the beginning that says, based on a true story. That's not true. It is a true story. <laughs> it is a true story. Every word of the courtroom scenes is, is what was said verbatim in, in court. Admittedly, it's shortened, but it's, it's all there. Everything that David Irving, who we didn't consult at all, says in the movie is taken from his speeches, from his articles, from interviews with him on television or, or his books. Even you know the, the, the scene of him playing with his little daughter. I got that from a photograph and things that he'd written about his daughter and how much he loved his daughter Jessica. Nobody wanted to play David Irving 
nobody's agent certainly wanted to play David Irving because <laughs> the agent said he'll never work again if he plays someone this vile and this evil. But Timothy, I'll, I'll get to, to Rachel yeah. in a second. Timothy said, I'll play him. I've played Albert Pierpont, the last um, hangman in England. I've played Turner. I've played Ian Paisley. I will play this man. And do you know how he got him? He said, I don't want to play him as a monster because it's scarier if he's not a monster. It's scarier if he's a human being. Mm. And he said, I went back and looked at a piece of film I'd seen a long time ago. It's of Hitler outside the Chancellery in Berlin as the Russians were approaching. And it was Hitler reviewing outside the bunker um, his troops, right. his troops being boys and old Trump, men, yeah, yeah. which is all that was left, and tasseling their hair and doing up their buttons. And in that just fraction of... Uh, uh, a few seconds. He was human. He was a monster, but he was human. So that was one thing I tucked away in my head. The other was I took a photograph of David Irving, and knowing that there's a left brain and the right brain, and you can look in through each of the eyes and see into that side of the brain, I covered up one of his eyes, and I looked at what was there staring out at me, and I thought, oh, my God, that's a sociopath. And then I covered up the other eye, and I looked at what was there in that eye, and it was a damaged child. Irving suffered from a kind of childhood trauma of being abandoned by his father. And not that makes him any more sympathetic. But to Timothy, those two facts together gave him a person he could play. Now, you knew these things, so you showed them to Timothy, yeah. and you yeah. told him about it. Yes. D getting to Timothy was because you know him, or did you actually go th through the gatekeeper who said, absolutely not, and you pushed? Yeah, and I pushed, yes. And, and he was very receptive to talking to me. Uh, he was in the middle of playing Ian Paisley, so we talked on the phone through all this stuff, and, and he agreed to do it. And I think he's wonderful. I mean, we talked about the high, um, fake, aristocratic voice and, and uh, the fast speech and, and the quick changes of topic and so on, which is very Trump-like. Um, and I think he did it, I think, amazingly. And if truth were known, I don't think he could have done another day's shooting. On, he said, you know, this is really getting to me, being inside this shell right. of this person. Yeah, yeah. The very last day, the last shots that we did were outside the Royal Courts of Justice in, in the Strand in London, where he gets hit by an egg yeah. behind. And it really, really hurt him. I mean, not physically. It does hurt, it, actually, if you get hit sure. by an egg. But it hurt him psychologically. He, he was trapped inside this person. He was doing his best to be this person without being sympathetic to the person, but trying his best as an actor to be empathetic to them, and he just had enough. Yeah. Wow. And as for Rachel, yes. um, the interesting thing about sticking with, with um, David Hare and, and my decision to use only the truth of what happened and not invent something to make it a, a more Hollywood for the movie, there is a kind of Hollywood movie like Erin Brockovich or anything with, with um, Jimmy Stewart or, or Henry Fonda that celebrates the individual under duress. You get an individual who is often just an ordinary man or woman in the street, very taciturn, uh, self-effacing, um, inarticulate, not particularly gifted, who is visited with some great injustice or evil and has to plow their way through this, this sea of troubles. And through the movie, they, they acquire some kind of voice. They don't have a voice at the beginning, but by the end of the movie, mm -hmm. they do what Jimmy Woods described to me as the championship speech in the final act, right. and it brings the house down. This was exactly the opposite. The woman that um, you know, Rachel Weisz eventually played starts out that way. She starts out in full possession of her faculties. She's feisty, she's self-possessed, she's articulate, intelligent, 
determined, passionate woman. And that should be where you end up as, a, as the heroine. But um, that's where she starts. And when she gets to London, people say, all those weapons you have, all this uh, uh, self-possession you have, you have to put it in, on hold. We want you to be silent. We don't want you to use that voice in court. We want you to, to be silent so that the focus will be on him. We know you're great at talking to the press. You have great media savvy. Don't do it. It'll piss the judge off. And did both you and David know initially as you took on that that, in fact, was the strategy? So yes. you knew that was the story. So we looked for something else. And the, the thing that we found was that in that, that uh, passage from articulacy and, and having a voice and being a lone warrior to being um, silent was something else that happened to her, which was that she was forced into self-denial. It's kind of ironic that in order to win the case, she has to be silent. It's, it's like it's the reverse of Irving. Irving denies the truth to serve himself, and she has to deny herself to serve the truth. I mean, it sounds rather facile, but in that, that act of self-denial, she realizes that she doesn't have to be a lone warrior, that she's, if you uh, continue the military analogy, she goes from being um, a warrior with a spear, like Bodicea in the, the statue, right. to being part of a combat unit where you watch each other's back. She's part of a team. And it's interesting, the way that Irving uh, chose to conduct the case in court, he uh, kept all the seats around him empty, so he would appear to be the lone warrior, right? David and Goliath. Right. And on the other side of the court was all the lawyers, and the lawyers' assistants and paralegals and everything, which made a great contrast you know, from the judge's point of view, one man against all this lot in court. But from a filmmaking point of view, every time you go to Irving, he's one person. Every time you go to her, she's in front of a team she doesn't see it that way at, at first. You know, she's being held back by all these people. If you like, it's like um, if she's a fish out of water going to London from a place where she feels secure and articulate and she has her place, warm, sunny Atlanta with moss hanging from the trees to rainy London. Truly, it rained every single day over the year I was there making this film. Um, she makes a journey. I can't, I've forgotten what I started saying. Well, we're going, we're going to, to, to a group. She yeah. makes a journey of being the individual to finally making a journey where she's, she, she becomes part of, 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 a, of an entire collective. Yeah. I can't but uh, tell, tell about getting her in the job. How did she that, take it? That's why I started on this uh, to start with. Um, again, sending a script out to people's agents uh, for the other role. It was the absence of that speech where she stands up at the end, or doesn't, in this case, stand up at the end and, and, and be the warrior herself that her, her mother kind of fated her to be by calling her Devorah, the leader in, leader in battle of her people. Um, but every actress who read it said, well, where's the big speech? Where's the championship speech at the end? And wouldn't play. Rachel Weiss didn't. She saw what we were trying to do, and she is, I mean, the most amazing actress. She is spirited, headstrong, opinionated, um, very, very um, smart, like Deborah Lipstadt, and just insanely talented. I mean, she's in every other movie at the moment. So, it, it, she, what do you do with an actress who's spirited and challenging, and and was she? Tear your hair out, basically. <laughs> I can see. It's true. I mean, um, were there moments actually when when you did disagree because oh, yes, oh that yeah, happens, yeah, and well, how did you handle it? Absolutely, absolutely. Um, it's it's great to work with English actors, British actors, I should say, and and the whole cast is British, including Rachel, although she's kind of honorary American, because they have this this wonderful. Um, 
that background of not just being in movies and television, but also doing theatre. And so they bring a, a great deal of craft to it. And so they're all very good at working as an ensemble. Everyone was you know, fitting in with everybody else's style of acting. Um, I've done a lot of factually-based movies. I'm sorry to ignore you. I'm, it's I'm not. It's a, we're, we're all in this. We're all in this together. We're a collective. It's okay. I've done a lot of uh, factually-based movies in my time, and, and often they're with contemporary people who are still still alive and still there to be consulted. And I like to at least offer to the actor, you know, the chance to get together with the person that they're playing. Many actors don't want to do that, obviously, as, as we all have found. They they want to be in their own imagination and creating something from other materials. But in Temple Grandin, which is a movie I did for HBO, I put Claire Danes in touch with the real Temple, Grand, Temple Grandin. And they just bonded like that. In this case, I, I put Rachel, who'd agreed you know, with great enthusiasm to play this, in touch with Deborah Lipstadt. And they bonded like this. And the real Deborah came to the set in many, many days. And she was there to be consulted. You know, Rachel would, would rush off and say, um, tell me about this day. Tell me how you were feeling when you went into that meeting. What and, and, and use that. Uh, the the tearing the hair out bit was was kind of it's it's a creative, good thing. She likes to be in a, in a method sort of way, very much in the scene, very present in the scene, as if she hadn't um, a digression. I did a movie about um, the discovery of DNA, the molecule of DNA, with two actors, one American, one English, who played Watson and Crick, who right. discovered the right. double helix. The American was Jeff Goldblum, who was very much in the same style of acting as, as, as Rachel, being in the moment and, and wanting to give freshness to the scene. And uh, in that case, Tim Pickett-Smith, who, Shakespearean actor, well-trained well in knowing, oh, I move two paces forward, then I'll hit that key light there, and then I'll turn, and there's a rack focus that they're going to do, and then I'll do my line, and then move over here. <laughs> and he'd be waiting to go on and do that. And in the few minutes while the camera was, was uh, you know, um, running, he had a, um, an upright piano brought onto the set. And he would play ragtime standing up at the upright piano and recite with the other hand from P.G. Woodhouse <laughs> from a paperback while the camera was running until the moment I said, action. And then he'd throw the book away. And in, in that moment, he'd think, oh, f I, don't, I have no idea what I'm doing. Who am I? S excuse the, the language, sorry. Um, and that gave him the, the kind of surge of adrenaline and electricity to, to carry him into the scene. It scared the sh of the other actor, but they actually loved working together after a bit. Same thing happened to me with uh, David Suchet, a great English actor, and Michael Keaton. This kind of coming together of two different acting styles, and yet they, they got some electricity from each other. Same with Rachel. It took a lot of... Um, preparation for her to forget what she knew about the movie so that she could come fresh into the scene so that what happened in the scene happened to her fresh in the moment. So we, we needed to do a lot of takes. But everybody was very, very, as I say, ensemble-minded. Uh, so everybody adjusted to that. Uh, uh, how long was your shoot? About? What I try and do when I finish a shoot is just flush all the bad things, like the schedule and the oh god, okay, forget that. <laughs> out of my head, and I can't actually remember. What in terms? But it was very short. We were shooting like hundreds of scenes a day. In in terms of locations, in um, for example, the courtroom itself. Did yeah. you? Is that a real one? Yeah, uh, the exterior is the real exterior, and we had actually had to have the real judge, who is played by, um, um, what's his name? Alex Jennings played by Alex in the movie. 
intercede with the, uh, the, the Lord Chancellor to get us permission to film outside the Royal Courts with all the, the press and so on. Um, but the inside of the court itself? The inside of the court we couldn't get into for security reasons, but what we found it was uh, a Crown Court in Kingston, and just out, outside London, right. which is a dead ringer for the Central Criminal Court in London. So it had that same feeling of being a kind of neo-Gothic. Victorian. When you were in the courtroom, just at a, on a technical phase, did you use multiple cameras, or were you using? Yeah, had to. And how many would you use? Four. Four. Yeah. Wow. Not, so not all the time, but there was so so much stuff to be done, so many scenes in a day to be done that that we there was no other way to do it. And w when you were working with four, would you work with four in the same direction? So that if you if you're you know heading to, uh, you know as distinguished from heading toward the judge, heading toward the the, the prosecution, more or less, more or less. Um, I had seen uh, Pavel Pavlikovsky's film Ida, mm -hmm. which you must yeah, know, yeah. Um, when I was preparing for this, and I loved the way that he used light, almost as a, as a, a, um, a spiritual thing, and I wanted to have light in the sense that it is in the age of the Enlightenment as truth. Light is truth, always coming from one side and with a great sense of natural light, like a Vermeer. So that was the main direction. We, we lit through the, the high windows on one side and did very little fill light. So everything was compatible, even if you shot the other way, provided you didn't clear, you could have a nice nimbus around the characters. Talk about your experience in Auschwitz. I actually, just before we walk forward, I was asking, was this your first time? And it was not. And no. I like the... Having seen many movies and having been there myself, it's always such a um, disturbing experience to relive. And something happened on this that was, for me, very personal, but I'm interested in how, in your experience, and how you decided to photograph it the way you photographed it. It's always been personal for me. Um, I've if any of you went to the, the landmark uh, where the movie opened last weekend, you might have read a little piece I wrote for their newsletter, which is recalling how 40-odd years ago I was a, a documentary director for the BBC, and I went for a, a documentary series that's about the history of science and morality and mankind called The Ascent of Man. Any old people like me in the audience might remember it from PBS from back in the 70s. Um, one scene we shot at Auschwitz where the presenter of the series, Jacob Bronowski, walked into a pond. The pond was at the back of the crematorium that you see them walking on the roof of in the movie. And the ashes were coming out of the crematorium faster than the SS knew what to do with them. They threw them in the river Vistula. They threw them on marshland. And they threw some of them into this pond, a stagnant pond with rushes. And we decided to do the, the plea for tolerance that he made uh, on camera there having him walk into this pond and scoop a handful of the sediment from the bottom of the pond, which was, in fact, human ashes, and say, you have to touch people. You cannot turn them into numbers. Um, I went there the day before we shot it, just on my own, just to scout it. And I realized, you know, I don't know how deep the pond is. I don't know whether he's going to slip. He's an old guy. So I have to go in and try it myself. So I found myself holding that handful. And that was the kind of unfinished business that uh, I carried uh, with me into making this movie. And one of the reasons I, when I thought I'd retired after Temple Grandin, I thought, no, no, this is an important movie to do. I've got to go back there and finish that. Well, first of all, I'm glad you didn't retire. But secondly, talk about how you decided to shoot it. I mean, there's a mood that's there because of the grayness, and there's also those two shots that are 
the one particularly where behind her there's just suddenly the I'm using a word that's that's not not a visual word the echo of those people walking yeah. down those yeah. stairs and then of course moving in on the peephole and those two yeah. shots talk about the evolution of, of that's how you not shot something you do by accident and it's not something you do without a great deal of discussion and there were really heated passionate discussions about the propriety of doing that and none of us wanted to exploit the Holocaust um, for showbiz reasons or anything like that. There are two shots you may remember. There were four that, that I had planned in the movie. And they were, if you like, stemming from the idea that fact is different from belief. Truth and fact are different from belief. Belief is something that happens in your head. A fact happened on the ground. Real people trod in a place and dislodged a stone or brushed against a tree or something. And none of that is in this movie. Uh, the, the emptiness of Auschwitz, I thought, was very eloquent. But I wanted, at a couple of points, there to be... Again, I keep digressing. Yeah. There's a Tarkovsky movie called Solaris, yeah, the, the original one, sure. where on the space station uh, you get a glimpse of an experiment that one of the scientists has been doing, an illicit experiment of some kind. And the door opens a fraction, and just for a few frames you see something furtive inside. And it's horrible because you don't know what it was that you saw. It's a little gem of something, and your imagination starts to work on it. My God, what was that I saw? Mm -hmm. I wanted there to be three or four moments in the movie where all these lies met an answering grain of fact, a different reality. And I didn't want it to be photorealistic because that, I think, is an insult to, to the people who died there. But real people went through real physical experiences there. So I wanted, and this is something that happened to her on that trip to Auschwitz, she had a row with Rampton and she went back to the ruins of the crematorium and... She looked at the steps, essentially, and saw that in her head, that endless river of people going down those steps. And you don't get that just from looking at the steps. I mean, it's very it's not photorealistic. It's, it's several layers of, of images there, and, and you don't really recognize any faces. But it's an idea that an endless river of people went down there. The other time is, is in, in court, where um, it's, I think, the most extreme juxtaposition of Irving's lies and the truth, right. where Rampton says, if they were just fumigating corpses in this, this, this room, um, why was there a peephole with double thickness glass and a metal grill on the inside? And he doesn't answer. But she looks at the, the photograph of the door and the peephole in the courtroom, and she sees in through that peephole what the answer is. Scrabbling fingers. That's a kind of little grain around which your imagination can build the rest of the awfulness of what happened. In the museum at Auschwitz, as well as the shoes and all the things that we show, there's a diorama, quite a very detailed diorama of the, the whole setup of that crematorium and the undressing room and the gas chamber. Little tiny figures made of white plaster, but incredibly detailed. And you can see them walking down the steps, and you can see them trying to get out of the door. And it was a little fraction of that I tried to get into the movie. The choice of the one behind her shoulder, because that almost feels like it's clouds that are moving. Yeah. You 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 did actually photograph people. And yes. Is, yes, so you, yes. And, and did you know, just in terms of your creative process, did you know, I'm going to have this one be very suggestive, or was that an editorial discovery? It was part, partly both. Um, 
I shot some much more extreme stuff than that with a lot of um, extras going down the steps without her in the shot, just like her point of view. And I had an Alsatian dog in the foreground, which is snarling, like, just to use that much of it. So that you would be horrified and think, oh my God, what did I see and what didn't I see? And the more we did that, the more it still seemed like we were using actors to do something that we shouldn't be doing. And uh, then we hit on the idea of not looking down at the steps, but in fact looking at her face into the sky and making a kind of mask for her face so you, you saw her face clear as if they were passing through her head on either side and played around with the image again and again and again, more and more superimpositions so it became almost something abstract but not so abstract that you couldn't see that there were, there were hands and, and faces even though you couldn't recognize them. Did you shoot a separate shot for her of that or did you use something you already had and then play, played it on top? We did the shot of her uh, separately. You did. Annoying that. And she, she, she wept. You know, in terms of the, the um, most challenging, and this may have been one of the most challenging scenes for you as a director, which ones occur to you now as you recall the experience? There's a scene where um, she's asked to make the, the act of self-denial when um, Rampton, Tom Wilkinson, goes to her hotel room, which is always going to be a turning point scene. Um, Tom got very sick that day incredibly sick. We thought he was going to die. Not, not really, but he was about to faint. And we were just starting the scene. And we said, Tom, we have to get you to a hospital. He said, no, no, this is an important scene. We have to do this scene. I mean, macho cry. If I can just get through this standing up bit and sit down, we'll be fine. <laughs> so we said, yes, yes. And we, we took several takes of the where he's pouring the wine. And then he sat down and gave the most amazing performance. He refused the ambulance. And then we rushed him off to hospital afterwards. I mean, the two of them working together, I think just, a, it moves me every time I see it, that she is forced to say, no, it's not about me. It's more important than, than about me. Amazing. Um, there's a lot of camera styles here. There are times when you're using handheld. Yeah. There's times when you're using fluid camera, just really just gently moving, like, for example, at the dinner table when they're all talking to all the English, uh, the wealthier Jews, whether they can invest or not. Um, times when you, clearly the camera is locked down, times when it's not. Um, what determines for you a choice of style and how to mix them? I, I, the DP and I talked a lot about it before we shot. Um, we certainly wanted it to, to have a very natural look, um, as far as the lighting was concerned, a very fluid look. In a movie that's about death, we wanted the, the camera to be more alive than, than dead. So I, my initial idea was to shoot the courtroom scenes handheld, because you never see courtroom scenes handheld. It turned out, because of having to use so many cameras, to be impossible to do that. But we tried uh, as best we could to, to, to mix them around. Some shots are deliberately unmoving and held for a painfully long length of time, like when Rampton first goes to Auschwitz, there's this, um, you've been, so you, you've seen them in the cases, the tens of thousands of shoes ranged on both sides of a corridor. And the camera just pans around them and around them and around them, and you think there can't be any more, there can't possibly be any more, and then, then there are and there are and there are. And then cuts from that too. Uh, the one morning when we had the right weather conditions, the the dawn just breaking and fog and frost, and just hold it, just hold that wide shot of the, 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 the camp, not moving, for the audience to say to themselves, to imagine the owners of all those shoes were here, 
and now they're not. Just imagine that. And then you go on with the movie. And there are a couple of shots like that that are deliberately held for you to con confront what it is that you're seeing. There's a, there's a, and this may be related to David Hare's work as well as yours, there's a kind of frustration and outrage that happens early on where you feel, even if you know this history of it, that somehow righteousness is not going to win. How did you talk about this between yourselves as storytellers? Partly it's the fact that nobody knew that righteousness was going to win. Um, that intervention of the judge at the end is not a, um, a screenwriter's device. It happened when everybody thought, it's game, set, and match. We've won. We've won. It's going to come down in our favor. And then the judge says, well, supposing he really believes it, then it can't be lying if he really believes it. And at that moment, all seemed to be lost. So I, I think... You mean the story itself gave you that? Yes, yes. All the, the, the things that happen in the story, I mean, it, it's... It was immensely frustrating, immensely difficult for David Hare to write this stuff. Because? Because of this, this self-imposed constraint of only using verbatim what was said in the court. So nobody could say, you yourselves are bending the truth. And only using what Irving said that was recorded. Um, all the things that happened, there was an argument at Auschwitz between Rampton and, and Deborah Lifstadt. She did go off in, in a... In a uh, terrible mood, thinking that he was getting into Holocaust denial himself when all he was doing was saying, how do we prove this? Um, and the, the judge intervention did happen like that. I mean, she was a very passionate woman, is a very passionate woman. If you've met her, you will know this. And so I, I think of um, some of the drama coming not out of what's said, but out of, you know, George Bernard Shaw famously said that England and America are two countries divided by a common language. Exactly. And she goes from America to England and she's very much a fish out of water. It's not the language, it's not the, the English language that divides them, it's that she is speaking much more the language of passion and commitment. And he, Rampton, is speaking the language of cold legal logic. And they're both true. Last question has to do with the, the two of them. How have either of them responded to the film, meaning Irving, who's still around, and, and Lifstadt? Um, you mean both Rampton, the real Rampton? No, no, I'm not the real Rampton. I'm talking David Irving and, and, and Deborah Lipset. How, how have they responded to the Deborah film? Deborah Lipset has been infinite, uh, intimately involved with the movie, and she's doing Q&As all over the place, and, and she's very articulate, and, and you think, my God, she sounds, sounds just like Rachel Weisz. <laughs> <laughs> um, is there, I, I use the same uh, dialect coach, Susan Haggerty, for Claire Danes in Temple Grandin, and for, for Rachel in this. She's brilliant. But um, Tom Irving. Irving, Irving, well, he knew that we were, he's very litigious, and we, we thought he might do something to disrupt our filming. He certainly posted a lot on his website while we were shooting. He kept referring to our movie, Denial as Dental, changing the I to a T. And he, oh, the man is a, really an equal opportunity offender. <laughs> he said, uh, it, it's stupid the way they've chosen a beautiful Hollywood actress to play the Neanderthal Deborah Lipstadt, who should have been played by Ernest Borgnine. Got it. Oh, that sort of stuff. I mean, at one point in the trial, we didn't use this in the movie, but he, he did a Freudian slip and called the judge Mein Führer. He also said he was going to set up, because he said there are so many Auschwitz survivors, they keep 
multiplying over the years. I'm going to form an association of Auschwitz survivors, survivors of the Holocaust, and other liars. A-S-S-H-O-L-S, pronounced Somebody who could say something like that is is not a nice person. Truly. Well, listen, you clearly are. You've made a wonderful film. Thank you for sharing with us, and thank you for not retiring. <laughs> thank you. Thanks for listening to this DGA Q&A. Check out past episodes of the podcast by finding us on your favorite podcast app or at dga.org slash podcast. Also on our website, you can explore our visual history program with long-form oral history interviews that delve deep into the lives and careers of veteran DGA members, including Mick Jackson. You can explore over 180 fully transcribed and searchable interviews at dga.org slash visualhistory. Thanks again for listening. We hope you've enjoyed this discussion. We'll have another episode for you next week, so stay tuned. This podcast is produced by the Directors Guild of America. Music is by Dan Wally.